Hey folks, welcome back to another episode of Excuse Me History. It is part 8 of our series in the Gettysburg Campaign, and no real long intro today, you know, the usual stuff, like the Facebook page, there's maps and additional content there, of course, uh, like and subscribe uh, to the podcast if you haven't already, tell your friends and family, hey, there's a cool history podcast that you should listen to, it's called Excuse Me History. Um, but I will say that one thing I did learn this week was that uh, the podcast now has over 5,000 total listens over, I don't know, a dozen or so episodes. So if uh, if you're listening to this, you're obviously one of those listeners. Uh, and thank you for your continued support of the podcast. And uh, without further ado, let's start the show. The Battle of Gettysburg erupted on the morning of July 1st, 1863, as a result of either negligence or ignorance on the part of Confederate First Corps Commander General Ambrose Powell Hill and his division commander, General Henry Heath. With Hill's consent, Heath led his division from Cashtown to Gettysburg, Pennsylvania along the Chambersburg Pike until they were surprised by two brigades of Federal cavalry under the command of General John Buford. Heath sloppily deployed two brigades, which drove the cavalrymen back until they ran into the vanguard of General John Reynolds' First Corps. General James Wadsworth's division, particularly General Solomon Meredith's Iron Brigade, stopped the rebel attack dead in its tracks and forced them to fall back. By noon, the Army of the Potomac held the town of Gettysburg from capture and still controlled the pivotal high ground south of the town, but in the process they'd lost one of their best corps commanders in Reynolds. General Abner Doubleday had stepped up to take his place and performed well in his absence, but during the afternoon hiatus, General Oliver Otis Howard and his 11th Corps began to arrive. Howard was now in command of the field, but once General George Meade learned of the death of Reynolds, he immediately dispatched General Winfield Scott Hancock to Gettysburg to supersede Howard. This was the right move, as Howard seemed overmatched by his new assignment, but it remained to be seen if Hancock would arrive at the battlefield in time to make a difference. By 2 p.m. on July 1st, the entire 1st and 11th Corps, save for one brigade, was around Gettysburg. The 1st held McPherson's Ridge and Oak Ridge, west of town, and the 11th held the low ground to the north of Gettysburg between Oak Hill and Rock Creek. One division was held in reserve on Cemetery Hill south of town in case they were forced to fall back. General Robert E. Lee had awoken that morning in good spirits, but the lack of information of the growing battle and the absence of General Jeb Stuart irked him. Stuart wasn't fully to blame for the battle on July 1st, I think Hill and Heath deserve a big share of the credit for starting the fight, but Lee was dependent on Stuart's ability to screen his own army and gather intelligence on the enemy forces. Colonel E.P. Alexander later wrote, The absence of Stuart, with the bulk of his cavalry, does seem to cut some figure. Had they been with us, General Lee would doubtless have been too well informed of the enemy's exact location to have permitted two divisions to blunder into an attack upon two corps and a division of cavalry, unquote. Lee arrived just west of Gettysburg during the lull in the battle that started around noon. Things had gone poorly up to this point for the Confederates, but Henry Heath urged his friend to allow him to renew the attack. His entire division was up, and he was now reinforced by General Dorsey Pender's division. General Richard Ewell's 2nd Corps was starting to arrive from the north as well. At that point, Lee did not want to commit more troops to combat without the presence of General Longstreet's 1st Corps, which was still en route to Cashtown, or General Stewart's cavalry, which was at the time still riding to Carlisle. 
but Dick Ewell and Robert Rhodes were about to force Lee's hand. General Robert Emmett Rhodes was one of the youngest generals at the division level within the Army of Northern Virginia. Only John Bell Hood, Dorsey Pender, and Jeb Stuart were younger. He was also the only non-West Pointer commanding a division in the Army. He was born in 1829 in Lynchburg, Virginia. The Rhodes family had been fairly prominent in the days of the American War of Independence. Robert's great-grandfather was pretty well acquainted with Thomas Jefferson, but most of the family's wealth was lost in the early 19th century due to poor management. His father, David Rhodes, was the deputy clerk of the county court in Lynchburg, Virginia. He disdained plantation life, though the family still owned and managed an estate that was rented out to tenant farmers. The Rhodes family were city dwellers, but they still owned a few enslaved black people who worked in the house. David Rhodes had been active in the Virginian militia, and was eventually appointed as a general, though the title was largely honorary. He envisioned a military career for his son Robert, and hoped to secure for him an appointment to the U.S. Military Academy. Ultimately, he failed to do so, and instead, Robert Rhodes went to his backup school, the Virginia Military Institute in Lexington, where he studied civil engineering. After he graduated in 1848, he taught at VMI as an assistant professor until 1851, when he applied for a full-time professorship, but the job instead went to Thomas Jonathan Jackson, better known by his nom de guerre, Stonewall. Coincidentally, it was under Stonewall Jackson whom Rhodes would later serve as a brigade and division commander during the Civil War. Rhodes eventually settled in Alabama, where he worked as a railroad engineer. When war broke out in 1861, he helped recruit a regiment in Tuscaloosa that he led at the First Battle of Bull Run. Shortly after, he was promoted to brigade command. He was severely wounded at the Battle of Seven Pines in the spring of 1862, but eventually returned for the Battle of Antietam, where he was wounded for a second time. In 1863, he finished his second medical absence and was promoted to command of a division in Jackson's 2nd Corps. Rhodes's soldiers spearheaded the surprise flank attack against the 11th Corps at the Battle of Chancellorsville. Shortly before the attack, Jackson noticed that two of his four division commanders and ten other high-ranking officers were Virginia Military Institute graduates or professors. Allegedly, he said to a nearby officer, quote, The Institute will be heard from today, unquote. It seemed appropriate that Rhodes and his division arrived on the field north of Gettysburg just in time to make another flanking assault. He initially hesitated to order his five brigades into action. For one, Heath's division was no longer engaged in combat, and Rhodes still followed Lee's orders not to initiate a battle. But the situation changed when none other than the 11th Corps of the Army of the Potomac began to move into his front north of town. Yule, who was with Rhodes on Oak Hill, believed this movement meant that the Federals were massing troops in order to make an assault. Because of this, Ewell and Rhodes believed this voided Lee's orders to avoid a general engagement, but had they acted a little more quickly, they might have caught the Federals off guard by hitting them in the open on their flank. Buford's cavalry had given warning to the infantry commanders of the 1st and 11th Corps about the approach of Rhodes' division from the north, and they shifted their lines to meet the threat during the midday break in the battle. On the extreme left of the Federal line was General Abner Doubleday's division, now under the temporary command of Brigadier General Thomas Rowley. Rowley was from Pittsburgh, and mostly worked as a cabinet maker before the war, but he'd volunteered to fight in the Mexican War and served as a captain in that conflict, experience which garnered him an officer's commission in the Civil War. But Rowley was in no position to be commanding troops on July 1st. He suffered from boils on his inner thighs, which made it impossible for him to ride a horse without experiencing intense pain. Though he was encouraged by his doctors to ride in a carriage, Rowley refused to do so and continued to grit it out on horseback. 
He was probably also dealing with some sort of fever on July 1st, so to numb the pain of both, he decided to hit the bottle. Drunkenness in the Civil War was, shall we say, not uncommon. For every teetotaler like Stonewall Jackson, there were probably two or three officers whom today we'd call alcoholics. Some officers did drink during battle. We talked about the shot of liquid courage taken by General Judson Kilpatrick in the Puritan Manors back at Brandy Station, but only a few times were they accused of being drunk on duty. But to at least a few observers on July 1st, Riley was clearly drunk as he was slurring his words when he gave orders. Raleigh's brigade, which was temporarily led by Colonel Chapman Biddle, was on the extreme left of the Union line at McPherson's Ridge. His other brigade, led by Colonel Roy Stone, was positioned at a 45-degree angle on the ridge along the Chambersburg Pike. Sandwiched in between the two was the Iron Brigade, which was still in Herbst Woods, where it had driven off the attacking rebels earlier that morning. General Lysander Cutler's brigade, which had taken heavy casualties and retreated during the first phase of the battle, had rallied and was now on Oak Ridge, a ridge directly to the south of Oak Hill. Though it originally faced westward, its line was shifted to be at an angle, so it looked both to the west and to the north toward Oak Hill. Next in line was the division of Brigadier General John C. Robinson. Robinson was a 46-year-old New Yorker who had attended West Point, but was expelled for insubordination before he graduated. After briefly studying law, he joined the Army and served as an officer in the Third Seminole and Mexican War. He'd drawn praise from his superiors for his leadership early in the Civil War, and was thought of as one of the more dependable division commanders in 1863. He placed the brigade of Brigadier General Henry Baxter to the right of Cutler's brigade along the Mummasburg Road. Baxter, a pre-war gold miner and miller, whose only military experience had been commanding a local militia company, had shown quite a bit of bravery during the war as he'd been wounded three times in the past year. Robinson's most senior brigade commander was Brigadier General Gabriel Paul, who was both older and had actually graduated from West Point, which meant that he outranked Robinson in the old army. Paul's brigade was held in reserve. With the exception of Califf's battery of horse artillery, the Federals had been outgunned in the morning, but they now had several batteries from the brigades of Colonel Charles Wainwright and Major Thomas Osborne for support. Shortly after two in the afternoon, General Robert Rhodes's division was in position to attack. His five brigades, which totaled nearly 8,000 men, were almost of equal strength to the entire Federal First Corps. Things got underway just before 2.30. Rhodes carefully designed an attack that involved the brigades of Colonel George O'Neill and Brigadier General Alfred Iverson. Both would simultaneously advance southward from Oak Hill to assault Baxter's brigade on Oak Ridge. When the battle was underway, Brigadier General Junius Daniel would lead his brigade, newly arrived from North Carolina, into the fight on Iverson's right. Rhodes kept Brigadier General George Dole's Georgia Brigade on the extreme left to protect the flank against the 11th Corps, which was now in position north of Gettysburg, until General Jubal Early's division reached the field. Rhodes kept Brigadier General Stephen Dodson Ramser, arguably his best brigade commander, in reserve. Rhodes's plan was tactically sound, but like many failed assaults of the Civil War, it lacked proper coordination and communication. O'Neill and Iverson's brigades were supposed to attack at the same time, but O'Neill sent his Alabamians in without consulting with Iverson. Even more egregious was that O'Neill decided to observe and direct the attack from Oak Hill instead of accompanying his men. As I discussed in the last episode, Army and Corps commanders shouldn't be leading from the front, but brigade commanders absolutely should. Because of a misunderstanding with Rhodes, O'Neill withheld one of the brigade's regiments from making the attack. 
The Alabamians, not at full strength, leaderless, and without support, advance in the wrong direction, which could have been corrected had O'Neill been there, but instead they unexpectedly marched head-on against Baxter's brigade, who had the advantage of defending behind a stone wall and a roadside fence. A soldier in the 88th Pennsylvania later recalled that, quote, our presence provided a surprise, unquote. The surprised Alabamians were met with a hail of lead bullets in their front and an intense barrage of artillery fire from their left. The Confederate artillery failed to make much of a dent, and without infantry support, they were the prime target of the federal guns. The 88th and 90th Pennsylvania, along with the 12th Massachusetts Infantry, poured in volley after volley. Captain Robert Park, a company commander in the 12th Alabama who was wounded in the fight, later wrote in his diary that, quote, musket balls were falling thick and fast around us and whizzing past and often striking someone near. It was a wonder, a miracle, I was not afterward shot a half a dozen times." Unquote. The assault of O'Neill's brigade was over in less than half an hour. Dozens were killed and hundreds were wounded. As O'Neill's brigade was faltering, General Iverson's brigade advanced into the fight. Like O'Neill, Iverson declined to actually lead his brigade and instead watched on several hundred yards behind the front line. He was later accused of drunkenness and cowardice. The former was probably unfounded, but the latter he had a harder time defending. Alfred Iverson Jr. was the son of Alfred Iverson Sr., a fire-eating secessionist politician from Georgia who was elected to the U.S. Senate in 1855 until he left in early 1861 after Georgia passed its secession ordinance. Iverson Sr. called the secession winter a revolution and ended a speech in Congress by saying, quote, The Rubicon is passed and it shall never, with my consent, be recrossed. I may safely say, however, that nothing will satisfy Southerners, or bring them back, short of a full and explicit recognition of the guarantee of the safety of their institution of domestic slavery and the protection of the constitutional rights for which in the Union they have so long been contending, and a denial of which, by their Northern Confederates, has forced them into their present attitude of separate independence." Unquote. Iverson attended school at the Tuskegee Military Institute until the U.S. invasion of Mexico. Like most Southern Democrats, his father was an outspoken supporter of U.S. expansion for the purpose of increasing the reach of the institution of domestic slavery. Iverson Sr. recruited and equipped a volunteer regiment in Georgia, which a 17-year-old Iverson Jr. joined and was given the rank of second lieutenant. When the war ended, he ventured into the legal field, but eventually left that profession for an army career. Based on his Mexican War Service and his father's status as a U.S. Senator, he received a lieutenant's commission in the U.S. Army. He resigned in early 1861 and raised a regiment of North Carolina Infantry and received a colonel's commission. He made a name for himself by leading his regiment in an attack at the Battle of Gaines's Mill, during which he was wounded. He was promoted to brigade command that fall, but his career seemed to have peaked. He was criticized for his performance at the Battle of Chancellorsville, in spite of the second wound he received during that fight. But the belief that he got his job because of his father diminished his reputation, and I think it's not out of bounds to say that he might have avoided leading his brigade from the front at Gettysburg because he was afraid to take another bullet wound. Which I understand, but it was something you couldn't do as a Civil War general and not get called a pussy for. As O'Neill's brigade faltered, Iverson's brigade entered the fight. Sergeant H.C. Wall, a soldier in the 23rd North Carolina Infantry, later wrote, quote, The brigade, about 1,450 strong, advanced under artillery fire through the open grass field in gallant style, as evenly as if on parade. But our brigade commander, after ordering us forward, did not follow us in that advance, and our alignment soon became false. 
There seems to have been utter ignorance of the force crouching behind the stone wall. For our brigade to have assailed such a stronghold thus held would have been a desperate undertaking. To advance southeast against the enemy, visible in the woods at that corner of the field, exposing our left flank to an enfilading fire from the stronghold, was fatal. Yet this is just what we did, and unwarned, unled as a brigade, went forward Iverson's deserted band to its doom. Deep and long must the desolate homes and orphaned children of North Carolina rue the rashness of that hour." Unquote. Because of the odd terrain, which obscured their field of vision, the Tar Heels had unknowingly marched within about a hundred yards of the Federal line. Captain Isaac Hall, commander of Company A of the 97th New York, from behind the stone wall watched as Iverson's brigade marched toward them. He later wrote, quote, This wall afforded no protection, but the land, for a short distance to the front, rose gradually and then fell off to a gradual slope on the other side, so that our regiments, in rear of the wall and a little back from it, were hid, even while standing, from the observation of any force that might approach over the narrow meadow in their front. Iverson's brigade, by some means unobserved, appeared suddenly in our front. From the left of Baxter's line, they came sweeping up, with a yell, obliquely upon Baxter's left. They were met with a withering fire, but they kept bravely on, and seemed about to engulf his left flank when their flank was struck by the fire of our regiment and by the regiment on our immediate left. The determined spirit of these regiments, wrought up to the highest pitch, smarting as they were under fire of a concealed foe, was with difficulty held in check till the opportune moment should arrive. But when it did arrive, a flame of fire in which every shot seemed to take a toll burst upon the flank of the Confederate line. It staggered, halted, and was swept back as by an irresistible current into a gully running diagonally to our front and perhaps 300 yards from our line. Under cover of this natural entrenchment, these troops first began to open fire upon us. But some displayed white flags, and Lieutenant Colonel Spofford of our regiment, a gallant and intrepid officer, who remained mounted on the left, Taking in the situation in the high spirit of the regiment, without waiting for orders, said, Boys of the 97th, let us go for them and capture them. The first intimation I had of his intent was a cheer from the left, and looking in that direction I found the colors already over the wall and color company following with ringing cheers. I hastened my company forward, and on a bound between the lines we were upon them. We took about 400 prisoners, officers and men, and two regimental flags of North Carolina troops." Unquote. Iverson's brigade marched into a perfect trap. Once O'Neill's soldiers had retreated, Baxter shifted his lines to meet the advancing North Carolinians. When they opened fire, hundreds dropped. Cutler's brigade, recovered from the morning action, poured on their own volley of rifle fire into the right flank of Iverson's brigade. Iverson shamefully watched the action through his field glasses. When he saw hundreds of his men lying down, some waving white handkerchiefs to signify their surrender, he was disgusted. Only later did he learn that most of the men lying down were dead or seriously wounded. Without O'Neill on his left, there was nothing preventing Baxter's New Yorkers, Pennsylvanians, and Bay Staters from concentrating their fire on his brigade. He begged General Junius Daniel, whom he expected to be soon advancing on his right, to send reinforcements to save his brigade, but it was too late. Those who avoided being seriously shot retreated back to the safety of Oak Hill. Rhodes watched on, frustrated by the poor performance of his brigade commanders up to this point. His division was in a precarious position now. His center was almost completely shattered, which made Dole's brigade on the left isolated to attack by General Schimmelfennig's Germans. As Iverson's brigade retreated, General Junius Daniel's brigade went into action. 
Daniel, who had just last week turned 35, hailed from Halifax, North Carolina. His father was a wealthy slaveholding planter and politician. He was elected as the Attorney General for North Carolina and served six consecutive terms in the U.S. House of Representatives. Junius attended West Point, where he graduated 33rd in the class of 1851. He served in the Army on outposts of the New Mexico frontier. Briefly, his commander was Dick Yule, whose corps he now led a brigade in. His Civil War service had been uneventful as his brigade had been assigned to the Department of North Carolina for the past year. He now led his untested Tar Heels into action against the Bucktail Brigade, led by Colonel Roy Stone. Stone began the war as a major in the 13th Pennsylvania Reserves, which was boasted as being made up of elite marksmen. In 1862, they were armed with breech-loading sharps rifles, normally only given to special sharpshooting units. They pinned the tails of white-tailed deer to their hats, hence the name Bucktails, to signify that they were skilled hunters. Stone was asked to recruit more regiments of this type. He was promoted to regimental command and led the 149th Pennsylvania Infantry, a.k.a. the 2nd Bucktail Regiment, until his promotion to brigade command in 1863. On the afternoon of July 1st, Stone's brigade held a McPherson farm on the ridge named after the family. Daniel's brigade marched almost due south up the slopes of McPherson's Ridge and across the railroad cut. He initially only sent three of his five regiments against the Pennsylvania Bucktails. Stone's infantrymen had good cover behind a rail fence along the Chambersburg Pike and were aided by the guns of Wainwright's Artillery Brigade. The Confederate troops were thrown back after a short fight and tried to take cover in the railroad cut as many soldiers had done that morning, but they too quickly realized that it was not the place to be. The Yankee batteries sent shell after shell at them, and the 149th Pennsylvania counterattacked their position. Daniel's men retreated back to safety. Daniel, a rather large man with a booming voice, rallied his retreating soldiers and with his reserve regiments advanced for a second time against the Bucktails. The battle was intense, as they traded musket fire on either side of the railroad cut. Neither seemed to really have the advantage. During the heat of the action, Colonel Stone was wounded in the hip and was captured by the rebel soldiers. He was replaced by Colonel Langhorn Wister, and despite the ferocity of the Confederate attack, the Bucktails held the ridge and Daniel's brigade fell back once again. Around this time, General Henry Heath rode back to meet with Generals Lee and Hill to discuss reopening the attack on McPherson's Ridge from the west. Lee this time told him not to begin the attack yet, but that soon he'd send orders to do so. The Army commander had not wished to fight a battle on July 1st, but it seemed like he'd now sensed an opportunity. Things had gone poorly so far. Heath and Rhodes had come up short against stout resistance from the Federal First Corps, but with Pender in position and early set to arrive at any moment, they could overwhelm the vanguard of the Army of the Potomac. The situation wasn't perfect, but like a shark who smelled blood in the water, Lee was drawn into the fight. To use a term of the day, his dander was up. I get the feeling that he was just one of those guys who couldn't resist the action of battle. It excited him. One of his most famous lines of the war came during the Battle of Fredericksburg, when he said, quote, It is well that war is so terrible, lest we should grow too fond of it, unquote. Lee had a kind of bloodlust, and he was now in his element. Shortly after Heath rode back to his division, Lee sent a courier with orders for him to renew the attack on the First Corps. Back on the other side of the battlefield, General George Doles held the left wing of Rhodes' position in the valley below Oak Hill. As General Schimmelfenig's division advanced in his front, the two sides began to skirmish. 
Doles was outnumbered and was sent reinforcements, but was forced by Colonel von Amsberg's brigade to fall back. But around 3.30pm, the tide of battle began to turn. General Francis E. Barlow's division was on the far right flank of the Federal position. He'd advanced his two brigades several hundred yards to the north of Schimmelfennig's division on his left, which made his position a sitting duck. He'd advanced his two brigades several hundred yards to the north of Schimmelfennig's division on his left, which made them sitting ducks. He later defended his actions by saying that the small knoll, which at the time was called Blotcher's Knoll, now usually referred to as Barlow's Knoll, would have made a good artillery platform for the Confederates and moved to secure it before they could. All of a sudden, 16 guns of Lieutenant Colonel Hillary P. Jones's artillery battalion opened up on Barlow's position. General Jubal Early's division had finally reached the field. His four brigades maneuvered into a line of battle to assault Barlow's division. In the lead was the brigade of General John Brown Gordon, a Georgian native, pre-war lawyer, and slaveholder. He'd impressed his commanders early in the war and had received a promotion to brigade command just after the Battle of Chancellorsville. For the first time, Gordon led his 1,800 Georgians into battle. He saw that Doles was in danger to the west. Since his soldiers had faced a tough series of marches over the past few days, he didn't rush them into the fight. They slowly marched down the Heidlersburg Road until they were close to the Federal lines. On the extreme right was the all-German brigade of Colonel Leopold von Gilsa. Gordon smartly directed his men to avoid attacking the Germans head-on. Instead, they maneuvered to hit them on von Gilsa's left flank. Gordon's soldiers surged forward, shouting the infamous rebel yell, with bayonets drawn, they charged across Rock Creek. Instead of stopping to reload their muskets, they stormed von Gilsa's lines. The Germans were almost immediately overwhelmed by the fierce melee, and began to retreat. General Barlow rode forward to rally his troops, but he was shot off his horse by a rebel attacker and captured in the chaos of the battle. In another one of those mythical, romantic Gettysburg stories, General Gordon alleged after the war that it was he that saved Barlow. In his post-war memoirs, he wrote, quote, In the midst of the wild disorder in his ranks, and through a storm of bullets, a Union officer was seeking to rally his men for a final stand. He too went down, pierced by a mini-ball. Riding forward with my rapidly advancing lines, I discovered that brave officer lying upon his back, with the July sun pouring its rays into his pale face. He was surrounded by the Union dead. Quickly dismounting, and lifting his head, I gave him water from my canteen, asked his name, and the character of his wounds. He was Major General Francis E. Barlow, of New York, and of Howard's Corps. The ball had entered his body in front and passed out near the spinal cord, paralyzing him in legs and arms. Neither of us had the remotest thought that he could possibly survive many hours. I summoned several soldiers who were looking after the wounded and directed them to place him upon a litter and carry him to the shade in the rear. Before parting, he asked me to take from his pocket a package of letters and destroy them. They were from his wife. He had but one request to make of me. The request was that if I should live to the end of the war and should ever meet Mrs. Barlow, I would tell her of our meeting on the field of Gettysburg, and of his thoughts of her in his last moments. He wished me to assure her that he died doing his duty at the front, that he was willing to give his life for his country, and that his deepest regret was that he must die without looking upon her face again. I learned that Mrs. Barlow was with the Union Army, and near the battlefield. When it is remembered how closely Mrs. Gordon followed me, it will not be difficult to realize that my sympathies were especially stirred by the announcement that his wife was so near him. Passing through the day's battle unhurt, I dispatched at its close, under flag of truce, the promised message to Mrs. Barlow. 
I assured her that if she wished to come through the lines, that she should have safe escort to her husband's side. In the desperate encounters of the two succeeding days, in the retreat of Lee's army, I thought no more of Barlow, except to number him with the noble dead of the two armies who had so gloriously met their fate. The ball, however, had struck no vital point, and Barlow slowly recovered, though this fact was wholly unknown to me." Unquote. There's a lot to unpack from this story. The first thing is Gordon's account of what Barlow said to him as he supposedly lay dying on the battlefield that he should tell his wife that he fought bravely, died nobly, and loved her. It seemed like the most cliched of cliches that a dying soldier would do that, but there's some basis in reality. For the people of the Victorian era, particularly Euro-American Protestants, they strongly believed in a concept called the good death. What that meant was that if someone was going to assuredly get into heaven, they needed to die in the most serene, peaceful, and conscious way. Before the Civil War, this usually meant dying in your bed at home, surrounded by loved ones. The dying person would calmly accept their fate and, in a manner of speaking, let Jesus take the wheel, or maybe a more accurate term, Jesus take the reins. The Civil War shattered this kind of death. For the first time, tens of thousands of young men were dying hundreds of miles away from their homes on battlefields and towns that their families had never heard of before. They died suddenly and randomly, but for many unfortunate souls, they died slowly in painful agony, screaming for water or their mothers or for someone to stop the pain. It was something that Americans were unprepared for, so Barlow bravely and calmly telling Gordon that he wanted his wife to know that he died well was not uncommon. He was just trying to assure her that he would have died a good death. Now, all that being said, Gordon's story is almost assuredly heavily embellished, if not entirely made up. We made it up. We made this one up. It's a made-up tale. It's a total fabrication. Like I talked about in the last episode, in recent years there's been an increase in scrutiny of the claims that Civil War soldiers made after the war, the memoirs of generals especially. When Gordon wrote his memoirs, he was a sitting U.S. Senator from Georgia. He took the story a step further when he said that years later, he ran into Barlow at a dinner party held by another congressman. Gordon believed that Barlow likely died shortly after their encounter and was shocked and relieved to learn that he actually survived. Gordon's story of saving Barlow and their post-war meeting was part of an increasing trend of reconciliation. Gordon, along with many other veterans, North and South, came to believe that the only way for the country to heal was to put away their old differences and focus on the positive aspects of the war only. That both sides, whether their causes were noble or not, fought bravely and valiantly. They left it all on the field, and now that the war was over, they should come together and reconcile. This type of reconciliation was usually done at the expense of black citizens, whom Gordon and many of his fellow ex-Confederates hoped to keep out of politics. The Southern Redeemers, as they were called, wanted to end Reconstruction, and essentially they wanted to return the country to the old status quo. That reconciliationist interpretation of the Civil War still lingers on today, though its popularity has faded quite a bit in recent years. Barlow himself wrote several days after his wounding that it was a different Confederate officer who found him and moved him to safety. The letters in his pocket were not written to his wife, but were actually correspondence with Robert Dale Owen, a former U.S. congressman, abolitionist, and utopian socialist. He feared that the letters from the notoriously anti-slavery Owen would jeopardize his chances of parole, so he destroyed them before the Confederates could find the letters. Barlow's wife was serving as a nurse with the Army of the Potomac, but unfortunately she died of typhus in 1864 so that she could not confirm or deny Gordon's story. 
Despite his grievous wound, Barlow survived and returned to command the following year and served with the army until the surrender at Appomattox. After the war, he was remarried to Ellen Shaw, the sister of Colonel Robert Gould Shaw, commander of the 54th Massachusetts Regiment, an all-black or U.S. Colored Troop Regiment made famous by the movie Glory. After Barlow's wounding and capture, Brigadier General Adelbert Ames, his most senior brigade commander, stepped in to take charge of the situation. Ames, a native of Maine, had graduated from West Point, fifth in his class, just two years prior. He'd served as the commander of the 20th Maine Infantry Regiment until just after the Battle of Fredericksburg, after which he accepted a job as an aide on General Meade's staff. Likely based on Meade's recommendation, he was given command of a brigade in Barlow's division just after Chancellorsville. Ames amazingly managed to stop the retreat of Ungilsa's soldiers, and along with his own brigade attempted to make another stand against Gordon's advancing troops. But almost as soon as they'd reformed their lines, they were hit by two more Confederate brigades. General Harry Hayes's Louisiana Tigers and Colonel Isaac Avery's North Carolina Brigade jumped the exposed right flank of the Federal line. Von Gilsa's brigade broke again, and this time it would not rally. After the Germans gave way, Ames's right was unprotected and was quickly overwhelmed by Early's three attacking brigades. To the west of Early's division, General Doles had launched his own attack on Barlow's exposed men. Generals Howard and Schertz attempted to stop or at least blunt the momentum of Early's assault. Colonel Vladimir Kierznowski's brigade was ordered forward to support their left flank, but by then it was basically too late to save the position. Howard had one division in reserve on Cemetery Hill that he hesitated to commit to the battle, but as the right wing was collapsing, he ordered that the brigade of Colonel Charles Coster be sent to act as the rear guard for the retreating soldiers. Coster's brigade of New York and Pennsylvania soldiers were essentially sacrificed in order to prevent the complete annihilation of the 11th Corps. They arrived at a brickyard north of town and prepared to make a defensive stand. The Louisiana Tigers and North Carolina Tar Heels surged forward in their front and on their right flank. In a short time, nearly half of Coster's brigade was either captured, wounded, or killed before the rest broke in a rout through the town. In about an hour and a half of fighting, Early's division and Dole's brigade had completely driven two divisions of the 11th Corps from their front. This coincided with renewed attacks on the other side of the field. Heath's division once again advanced from Harris Ridge to McPherson's Ridge. This time it was the brigades of Brigadier General J. Johnston Pettigrew and Colonel John Brockenbrough. Brockenbrough was a Virginian and a VMI graduate of 1850. He'd commanded a brigade on and off for about a year, but he had a rather poor reputation as an officer. R.E. Lee had not recommended him for a promotion to Brigadier General. They were aided by the reformed brigade of General Davis. All three basically attacked along the same front as Heath's men had done in the morning. The Iron Brigade and Bucktail Brigade had both already faced heavy attacks that day. Colonel Chapman Biddle, commanding General Rowley's brigade, held the extreme left wing of the 1st Corps and was the only one that had not seen combat on July 1st. Pettigrew's 2,500 soldiers attacked along the southern portion of McPherson's Ridge, first against Biddle's brigade. Biddle's men were quickly outflanked by the Tar Heels, and because of Rowley's drunkenness, they accidentally blocked their artillery support. The Confederates rolled up their left flank, both taking heavy casualties in the process, and eventually the Yankees began to retreat. The rebels turned their attention to the Iron Brigade in Herbst Woods. Longsall's Westerners, urged on by General Reynolds, had driven out Archer's Brigade from those very woods only a few hours before. Now, it was their turn. The Black Hats fought fiercely, but they were exhausted and outnumbered. One famous character you'll often read or hear about in things related to Gettysburg was a man named John Burns. 
John Burns was born in 1793 in New Jersey. On July 1st, 1863, he was 69 years old and a longtime resident of Gettysburg. Burns was a self-important kind of guy, and it seemed like he longed for some sort of greater glory. After the Battle of Gettysburg, he claimed that he was a veteran of both the War of 1812 and, on occasion, the Mexican War. He technically did volunteer to serve in a militia unit during the War of 1812, but contrary to his claim that he fought at the Battle of Lundy's Lane, his unit was part of the defense of Philadelphia during the British invasion of the Chesapeake Bay, and he never saw combat. His claim of being a Mexican War veteran was almost certainly a story he made up later in life. It's a fake. It's fiction. It's an urban legend that never happened. No way. We got you. When he moved to the town, he worked mostly as a cobbler and married the daughter of German immigrants. As a citizen of Gettysburg, he was mostly known for being a town crank. He's kind of like the crotchety old man that might yell at kids for playing too close to his yard or complain that his neighbors weren't mowing their lawns frequently enough. Townspeople spoke of him as being rather pompous, constantly getting involved in other people's business and arguments, and he had little sense of humor about himself. As a younger and middle-aged man, he had a drinking problem, but later in life he gave up the bottle, became a devoted teetotaler, and joined the temperance movement. He at various times served as a town constable, which for the most part was a no-work job. Basically, it meant occasionally having to arrest a town drunk or fine someone for shooting a deer out of season. The job was given to people based on political connections. Usually, they'd pick loyal party men who were older and didn't have another steady source of income. Because of his rather humorless personality, he was the butt of many jokes, and locals loved to pull pranks on him. Gettysburg usually had two town constables, and the other one, a man named John Barrett, was notorious for giving Burns a hard time. Burns had no biological children, but did adopt a girl with his wife Barbara. Several people who knew him would later claim that in 1862, his adopted daughter gave birth to his child. Kind of a proto-Woody Allen story. Coincidentally, one of his jobs as town constable was keeping track of all the bastard children in town. At the outset of the Civil War, he did attempt to volunteer for a Pennsylvania infantry regiment, but was turned down due to his old age. For a time, he worked as a teamster for the Union Army, but when the war came to Gettysburg on July 1st, Burns left his house to see what was happening. In the morning, as the skirmish between Buford's cavalry and Heath's infantry was heating up, he argued with his neighbors before he grabbed his musket, which some later claimed was the one he carried during the War of 1812, and walked out to Seminary Ridge to observe the fighting and cheer on the passing Union soldiers. After a little while, he returned home, and at that point he decided that he was going to join the battle. Sometime in the early afternoon, when the fight was on hiatus, he ventured out to the McPherson farm, which was occupied by the Bucktail Brigade. He'd managed to secure a Union infantryman's rifled musket, it's unclear how, and volunteered his services to Colonel Langhorn Wister of the 150th Pennsylvania, who politely suggested that he go somewhere else. Burns doesn't seem like the guy who knew how to take a hint, so he made his way to Herbst Woods, where the Iron Brigade was located. He this time offered his services to Colonel William Robinson of the 7th Wisconsin Infantry, who accepted his offer. I can imagine this dude just trying to placate Burns, like, yeah, okay, old man, do whatever you want. As Pettigrew's brigade made their final assault against the Iron Brigade, Burns posted up behind a tree and fought alongside the Black Hats. He later claimed to have wounded or killed a rebel officer on horseback. Burns was forced to fall back with the rest of the Iron Brigade when they abandoned McPherson's Ridge around 4 p.m. It was during the retreat that he was wounded at least a couple of times. Burns' version of events tended to change over the years. Not necessarily in the way that some Civil War stories gradually would become more grandiose and detailed over time, but he never told the exact same account twice. 
Over the years, he claimed to have been shot two times, three times, four times, five times, as many as seven times, though interestingly enough, he never claimed that he was shot six times. But it's likely that he was shot two or three times in his attempt to escape back to his house in the town. He might have made it, but one of the bullets struck him in the ankle and he was unable to walk. Later, when the rebel soldiers of Pender's division were marching past him, they asked him what he was doing on the battlefield. Civilians were prohibited from fighting in the Civil War. Knowing this, Burns threw away the musket and many balls he'd obtained, and acted as if he was looking for a lost cow or a doctor to tend to a sick wife. The rebels mostly ignored him, he probably just looked like some old fool, but if he'd been caught out of uniform firing at them, it's possible that he might have been hanged as a bushwhacker. Burns passed out somewhere between McPherson's and Seminary Ridge on the evening of the 1st and awoke sometime after midnight on July 2nd. He crawled to a friend's house on Seminary Ridge, and later that day he was transported back to his home. Burns became arguably the most popular civilian figure of the battle in the war. Some called him the hero of Gettysburg for his brave actions. His monument, which today is on McPherson's Ridge, is one of the most prominent on the battlefield that you will first encounter. He was the subject of numerous articles and photographs, and after the battle he made a living giving lectures and accounts of his actions on July 1st and earlier actions that he fabricated. It's a total fabrication. It never happened. He died in Gettysburg nine years later at the age of 78 and is buried in the Evergreen Cemetery. The Bucktails continued to hold the McPherson farm against a rather weak attack by Brockenbro's brigade. At 4 p.m., the extreme ends of either side of the Federal line were breaking almost simultaneously. As Heath and Early's attacks were underway, Rhodes' men jumped back into the fray once again. Rhodes committed his reserve brigade led by General Ramser. Dodds and Ramser, like most of the troops in Rhodes' division, hailed from North Carolina. At 26 years old, he was one of the youngest men at the level of brigade command. He was an 1860 graduate of the U.S. Military Academy and an ardent supporter of slavery and secession. While at West Point, he developed a real hatred for cadets that were from above the Mason-Dixon line and basically all things Northern. The North always have the money and the power. They punish the South since hundreds of years. Even today, they put up their nose at us like we're peasants. I hate the North. He left the U.S. Army before North Carolina seceded and spent most of the first year of the war as a regimental commander. He was badly wounded during the Peninsula Campaign, and he never regained the use of his right arm, but was shortly after promoted to brigade command. He garnered attention for his actions during Jackson's flank attack at Chancellorsville, where his troops suffered the highest percentage of casualties of any Confederate brigade in the attack. General Lee said of Ramser and his men, quote, I consider its brigade and regimental commanders as among the best of their respective grades in the army, and in the Battle of Chancellorsville, where the brigade was much distinguished and suffered severely, General Ramser was among those whose conduct was especially commended to my notice by Lieutenant General Jackson in a message he sent to me after he was wounded." Unquote. Ramser, along with elements of Iverson's and O'Neill's brigades, launched an assault on Oak Ridge for the second time that day. Baxter's brigade had been replaced by General Robinson's reserve brigade, which was led by General Paul. The attacks between 2.30 and 3.30 had largely been uncoordinated and were piecemeal, meaning brigades were sent in one by one. But now, almost all of Rhodes' division was in full swing. Ramser spearheaded the attack on Oak Ridge against Paul's brigade. This time, instead of directing a frontal assault, the North Carolinians and Alabamians outflanked the federal position on the ridge. General Paul desperately tried to rally his troops, but he was nearly killed when a bullet went through the side of his head. Because the mini-ball missed his brain, he miraculously survived, but the wound left him permanently blind and severely diminished his sense of smell and hearing. 
Three other officers would step up to take his place. First was Colonel Samuel H. Leonard, who fell to a wound as well. He was replaced by Colonel Adrian Root, who was also struck down by a Confederate bullet and subsequently captured. Colonel Richard Coulter was the last to lead the brigade on July 1st, though he was also wounded, he would stay in command until July 3rd, when he temporarily relinquished command to Colonel Peter Lyle. Over the course of the three-day battle, five different officers would command the 1st Brigade of Robinson's division, the most of any brigade on either side. Ramsar's attack was far better executed than the previous ones had been, partially because it was properly led and sound tactical decisions were made, but probably more importantly, this attack was made with the weight of almost the entire division. Junius Daniels also led his brigade in an assault on Oak Ridge against Cutler's worn-out soldiers. Meanwhile, Pettigrew's men were making progress on McPherson's Ridge, and the 11th Corps was breaking. With the 11th Corps falling back or in full retreat on the right, General Doubleday sent out orders to his division commanders to pull their troops back to Seminary Ridge. As Paul's brigade began to withdraw, the 16th Maine Regiment was ordered to act as a rear guard to allow the rest of the division on Oak Ridge to fall back to safety. When the regimental commander, Colonel Charles W. Tilden, protested the order, General Robinson told him that they must, quote, hold at all costs. Unquote. Lieutenant Abner Small, a junior officer in the 16th, later wrote, quote, You all know what that means, said Colonel Tilden, turning to us, and in the same breath he gave the commands that sent us scurrying back towards the Mummersburg Road again. Unquote. Outnumbered and nearly surrounded, the Mainers held on as long as they could against the rebel attack. They couldn't hold for long, but they succeeded in securing enough time for the rest of Robinson's men to fall back to make another defensive stand. Lieutenant Small continued by saying, quote, for the last few moments, our little regiment defended angrily its hopeless challenge, but it was useless to fight longer. We looked at our colors, and our faces burned. We must not surrender those symbols of our pride and our faith." Unquote. The survivors of the regiment took the national and state flags they carried into battle and tore them to shreds. Each soldier took a piece and stuffed it into a shirt or a haversack before they too retreated to Seminary Ridge. Regimental colors were a source of pride to the units of the Civil War. To be a part of the color guard was an honor and showed a sense of bravery as they'd march a few paces ahead of the regiment in battle without weapons. For each battle the regiment participated in, they'd stitch the name of the engagement onto the flag. To capture an enemy's colors was a source of pride and conversely a source of shame to lose your own colors to the enemy. Of the roughly 280 men in the 16th Maine that went into the fight on July 1st, over 150, including Colonel Tilden, were taken prisoner. Over 60 were wounded, and 11 were killed on the battlefield. Only 43 managed to escape unharmed. The 16th Maine had a casualty rate of over 80%. Just after 4 in the afternoon, Heath's division finally captured the position that it first tried to take at 9am. It was a costly success. Pettigrew's brigade lost 800 men wounded, killed, or missing in a very short amount of time. Henry Heath was nearly killed when a bullet struck his hat, but in a rather bizarre coincidence, he had recently bought the hat, which turned out to be too large. In order to make it fit, he stuffed papers on the inside, which blunted the force of the bullet enough to save his life. The shot was still powerful enough to knock him unconscious and keep him out of the rest of the battle. He'll show up later in the campaign, but command of his division was passed down to Johnston Pettigrew. The badly mauled division was too worn out to give it a third go-around. The last unengaged division on the field was that of General Dorsey Pender. It had been a major blunder not to send in his division to support Heath's attack. It seemed to be a mixture of Heath's confidence that his men could do it alone, and Hill's loose grip on the situation either due to his health issues or difficulties adjusting to the job of Corps Commander. 
Pender commanded four brigades, but only two of them were sent in an attack against the First Corps on Seminary Ridge. On the left was General Alfred Scales' brigade of North Carolinians. As they advanced through the valley between McPherson's and Seminary Ridge, they were raked by heavy Federal artillery fire. Colonel Wainwright's 20 guns fired round after round of explosive shells, followed by canister, and then finally double canister. Hundreds were wounded in only a few minutes. On his right advanced a brigade of Colonel Abner Perrin, a 36-year-old South Carolina native, antebellum lawyer, and Mexican War veteran. In his first battle as brigade commander, Perrin launched the decisive assault on the Union position on Seminary Ridge. His 1,800 South Carolina foot soldiers surged forward without stopping to fire. Their attack was aimed at a gap in the Union lines between Biddle's brigade and the cavalry brigade of Colonel William Gamble, whose troopers had been fighting on and off since 7.30 a.m. and were now protecting the extreme left flank of the Federal position on Seminary Ridge. The soldiers of the Palmetto State broke through and were in the process of enveloping the First Corps. Seeing that Ewell's troops had routed the 11th Corps, General Abner Doubleday realized that to stay in their current position meant they'd likely all be captured. The order to retreat was given to all the infantry commanders, but forgotten in the confusion was Colonel Charles Wainwright. Wainwright's guns had blasted away the attacking rebel soldiers all afternoon, but as the infantry around them began to withdraw, Wainwright realized that it was time to get out. After his artillery fired off a final round, the guns and caissons were limbered and the horse teams carried them off the battlefield. Wainwright, who didn't want to cause a panic amongst the retreating infantry, ordered that the Teamsters walk the horses and not trot. Wainwright recorded in his diary, quote, As I sat on the hill watching my pieces file past and cautioning each one not to trot, there was not a doubt in my mind but I should go to Richmond. Each minute I expected to hear the order to surrender, unquote. The skirmishers of Pender's division were within a couple hundred yards of the retreating First Corps and as they got within range, they fired off their rifled muskets. The Federal soldiers scattered away from Chambersburg Street down smaller side streets and back alleys. With the road now open, Wainwright gave the order to his artillerymen to quicken their pace. Somehow, he only lost one three-inch rifled gun and three caissons when one of the horse teams was shot down by the Rebel vanguard. Wainwright later remarked, quote, I was terribly grieved when I heard about it. The more I think of it, the more I wonder that we got off at all, unquote. Though Gettysburg had many large roads and pikes that converged there, the streets in the town itself were mostly small and narrow. There were no broad ways or wide avenues for two retreating and two pursuing Army Corps to march down without there being major congestion. The soldiers of Howard's 11th Corps entered Gettysburg from the north first, and their retreat was described as an unorganized, frenzied route. John C. Hall, the surgeon for the 6th Wisconsin Infantry, later said, quote, Away went guns and knapsacks, and they fled for dear life, forming a funnel-shaped tail extending to the town. I did not see an officer attempt to rally or check them in their headlong retreat." Unquote. Urban combat was a rarity of the Civil War, but as troops poured in from the north and west, those in the rear of the Federal retreat were forced into hand-to-hand -hand fighting and street action against the victorious Confederates. The town of Gettysburg suddenly became a war zone. Frightened citizens who'd not fled watched on from their houses as soldiers were wounded and killed on their doorsteps and garden patches. Quote, no one can imagine in what extreme fright we were in when our men began to retreat, unquote, recalled Sarah Broadhead. Liberty Hollinger wrote, quote, We watched through the cellar windows, and oh, what horror filled our breasts as we gazed upon their bayonets and heard the deafening roar of musketry. Yes, we were really in the midst of an awful reality, unquote. 
General Alexander Schimmelfennig, the Prussian-born soldier and communist, tried to keep his division in good order as they retreated, but ended up separated from his men in all the chaos and confusion. He found himself in one of the many dead-end alleys in the town and was quickly surrounded by Confederate soldiers. Schimmelfennig was rather inconspicuously dressed for a Union general, which might have saved him in the moment. Instead of surrendering, he hopped a fence and the rebel soldiers decided he wasn't worth chasing. He hid in the woodshed of the Garlich family, where he stayed for three days to avoid capture. Ultimately, Schimmelfennig returned to his brigade, much to their relief because the popular general was believed to have been killed on the first, but newspapers would later paint him as just another cowardly German. Schimmelfennig spent most of the rest of the war in South Carolina, where he commanded a brigade and later the District of Charleston. He was the officer that accepted the surrender of the city, most associated with secessionism, in February of 1865. Ultimately, his time in South Carolina was hard on the Prussian, for he contracted both malaria and tuberculosis, the latter of which was responsible for his death in September of 1865. William Dorsey Pender was a 29-year-old native of Edgecombe County, North Carolina. He was the son of wealthy, slaveholding tobacco planters and had graduated from the U.S. Military Academy in 1854, 19th in his class. He served in the pre-war army for several years, mostly in the Dragoons. At the beginning of the Civil War, he started off as a captain of an artillery battery, but was soon promoted to regimental and then brigade command. Following the reorganization of the army after Chancellorsville, he was promoted to major general and division command, and was noted as being an aggressive, hands-on leader who had been wounded in almost every battle he had fought in. Pender had four fresh brigades when they entered the fight in the late afternoon, but ultimately only two saw serious action. Brigadier General James Lane, a VMI graduate and pre-war mathematics and natural philosophy professor, led his brigade on the extreme right wing of Pender's division when it attacked Seminary Ridge. As Scales and Perrin's brigades assaulted the infantry and artillery of the 1st Corps, Lane's North Carolinians skirmished with Buford's cavalry on the Federal left and made no headway. Brigadier General Edward Lloyd Thomas's brigades of Georgians were held in reserve hundreds of yards away from the action. Neither Hill nor Pender made an effort to use those two brigades effectively. Thomas and Lane had a combined 3,000 soldiers that could have been moved southeast around the town to cut off the Union retreat on the Tawny Town Road and Baltimore Pike. And generally, the decision to pursue the fleeing Yankees through Gettysburg was a real blunder on the part of the Confederates. Whatever energy or momentum they had was sapped by the congestion caused by the tight corridors and street fighting. Around 4 p.m., the same time that the Confederates captured McPherson's Ridge and the 11th Corps was still north of town but in full retreat, Major General Winfield Scott Hancock arrived from Tawnytown. Hancock first came across Colonel Orlin Smith, whose brigade of 1,600 soldiers from Ohio, New York, and Massachusetts was the only unit of the 11th or 1st Corps that had still not been engaged in combat. They were the sole reserve brigade left on Cemetery Hill. Hancock asked him if he could hold the position, which Smith answered with a rather tepid, I think I can. Hancock then asked him, quote, will you hold it, unquote. Smith replied more confidently the second time with, I will. Hancock then rode to find Howard. When he did, he informed him that he was charged with taking command of the army in the field. Howard initially balked at this because he was a senior officer, but after Hancock provided written orders from Meade that placed him in command, Howard, rather gracefully, stepped down and handed the reins to him. The new wing commander went about rallying the troops that were just beginning to arrive. He instructed most of the worn-out troops to form a defensive position on Cemetery Hill. He also sent battered survivors of the Iron Brigade east to adjacent Culpsville. And then, they waited for the next Confederate attack to come. 
Meanwhile, Hancock discussed with the other high-ranking officers the prospects of fighting a battle there. He said that he thought it was, quote, the strongest position by nature upon which to fight a battle that I ever saw, unquote. Both Howard and Brigadier General Governor K. Warren, the Army's chief engineer, concurred with the assessment and Hancock wrote a message to Meade, quote, When I arrived here an hour since, I found that our troops had given up the front of Gettysburg and the town. We have now taken up a position in the cemetery and cannot well be taken. It is a position, however, easily turned. Slocum is now coming on the ground and is taking position to the right, which will protect the right. But we have, as yet, no troops on the left. The Third Corps, not having yet reported, but I suppose it is marching up. If so, its flank march will, in a degree, protect our left flank. In the meantime, General Gibbon had better march on so as to take position on our right or left to our rear as may be necessary, in some commanding position. General Gibbon will see this dispatch. The battle is quiet now. I think we will be alright until night. I have sent all the trains back. When night comes, it can be told better what had best be done. I think we can retire. If not, we can fight here, as the ground appears not unfavorable with good troops. I will communicate in a few moments with General Slocum and transfer the command to him. Howard says that Doubleday's command gave way. General Warren is here. Unquote. One sneaky part of that message that I want to highlight was the next-to-last sentence. Howard says that Doubleday's command gave way. Already, Oliver Howard was finding a scapegoat for the defeat on July 1st. Howard told Hancock that it was the first corps that broke first, which precipitated the collapse of his own corps. To make sure his point was known, he also wrote his own message to me that reiterated this. He was smart to do so, because, at least in the short term, his own reputation was saved and Abner Doubleday's was tarnished. More on that to come. In reality, it's difficult to determine exactly who broke first and when it was. A lot of people claimed a lot of different things. And ultimately, I don't really think it matters. Based on the circumstances, by about 3.30 to 4 p.m., the Army of the Potomac was not going to be able to hold. I think if you play the scenario over, nine times out of ten, they retreat. Now, there were alternative scenarios for how things could have gone, and in many of those scenarios, things could have gone much worse. And the First Corps had some advantages that the 11th didn't. They had a solid defensive position, but by mid-afternoon they were outnumbered and exhausted. The 11th Corps actually outnumbered Early's division and Dole's brigade, but they were so poorly positioned that their relative advantage in size was diminished. This goes back to some of those Jominian principles I talked about in part one of this series. Basically, the key to winning is concentrating larger amounts of your own army against smaller amounts of the enemy. It's pretty self-explanatory and intuitive. But if Barlow had not moved his division so far forward, then it's more likely that they could have actually held the position, or at least not gotten the shit kicked out of him. Blame ultimately should lay with Howard. He was the highest ranking officer in the field, and should have recognized the mistake that Barlow made. Next in line was Carl Schertz, who, as acting 11th Corps commander, was responsible for placing the two divisions. He claimed that Barlow didn't follow his orders properly, and advanced his division on his own accord. The American-born officers within the army blamed the poor performance of the German soldiers and officers, but there's little truth in that. The ugly head of nativism was showing itself again. Many of the German soldiers fought bravely on July 1st, and those who did not were not put into position to succeed. Though about half of the 11th Corps was foreign-born, the American soldiers didn't perform markedly better. The two officers that deserved the most blame for the failure of the 11th Corps to hold Gettysburg were Howard and Barlow, both native-born Americans. As far as the performances of the 1st Corps, it was mostly positive. Reynolds died before he could really do anything of note, but pushing his soldiers to Gettysburg and committing them to fighting west of town was where he made his impact. 
Abner Doubleday performed admirably in his absence, though it's unclear exactly how much control he exercised over the division and brigade commanders. Of the three division commanders in the First Corps, Robinson and Wadsworth handled their troops particularly well. The only high-ranking officer that was singled out for lackluster leadership was General Thomas Rowley. As a replacement commander of Doubleday's division, he did almost nothing of note other than drunkenly yell at other officers and fall off his horse during the retreat. He maintained almost no control over the troops that he led and was arrested for drunkenness and temporarily removed from command. A year later, after getting into a fight with General Lysander Cutler, Rowley was brought up on charges that included drunkenness on duty on the battlefield, conduct prejudicial to good order and military discipline, conduct unbecoming of an officer and a gentleman, and disobedience of orders. After a rather hastily organized court-martial, he was found guilty on all counts but the disobedience of orders. Though he lost command of his brigade, he was reinstated to a position in Washington, D.C. by order of the President and Secretary of War, but ended up resigning his commission before the war was over. All the First Corps brigade commanders fought bravely, and many paid the price for their hands-on approach. Out of six brigade leaders in the First Corps that participated in the fight on July 1st, four were wounded. General Solomon Meredith, Gabriel Paul, Colonels Roy Stone, and Chapman Biddle. Also, as I mentioned earlier, three of Paul's replacements were wounded as well. More than a dozen regimental commanders were killed, wounded, or captured. Of the regular soldiers, it's a little hard to put an exact figure on the number of casualties because many of the units that fought on the first would go back into action again over the course of the battle, but of the eight to 9,000 soldiers of the First Corps present for duty, over half became casualties on the opening day of the battle. As many as 2,000 of those casualties were prisoners taken over the course of the fight, but most of them happened during the final retreat of the day. Well over 1,000 were wounded as well. The 11th Corps might have fared a little better, but suffered just under 50% casualties. Again, it's kind of difficult to determine the precise number of casualties on July 1st, but most estimates put the total losses for the Army of the Potomac around 9,000. For the Army of Northern Virginia, the fight on July 1st was a mixed bag. Casualties weren't quite as high for the Confederates, they lost somewhere between six and 7,000 soldiers, but again, they'd lost a larger percentage of their army. If you added up the total casualties for both sides on July 1st, the Battle of Gettysburg would still be about the 11th or 12th bloodiest battle of the war. It would only be second to the Battle of Antietam for most casualties in a single day's fight. The Confederate leaders had been pretty unimaginative, tactically speaking. Probably the worst defender of the day was A.P. Hill. Hill, who had the reputation as an aggressive leader who enjoyed the heat of battle, was pretty inactive for the most part on July 1st. His newness to Corps command, exacerbated by his illness, seemed to be an issue and it did not bode well for the future of the Army of Northern Virginia. Hill basically let his division commanders make most of the decisions during the course of the day with little oversight. Henry Heath was probably next in the line of bunglers. He initiated the battle, got roughed up by dismounted cavalry, and then ordered frontal assaults against fairly strong Union defensive positions. Of his brigade commanders, General Pettigrew was the only one that showed any real initiative. Dorsey Pender similarly launched a direct assault on the federal defenses on Seminary Ridge with only half of his division. General Richard Anderson's division, which got within a couple of miles of Gettysburg by the time the federal line broke, was not used at all. Anderson's soldiers marched at a rather leisurely pace from Fayetteville to Gettysburg, which, considering the circumstances, was unacceptable. Hill might have been willing to use Anderson's division to assault Cemetery Hill, but it's likely that he was overruled by Lee, who felt that he needed to hold at least one fresh division in reserve until the rest of the army was in Gettysburg. 
Lee began the morning not wanting to fight a battle, and he still held that opinion basically until the time that he realized it was too late to stop one. But even in the afternoon, when he ordered Heath's division to attack McPherson's Ridge for the second time, the normally confident army commander seemed to lack conviction in committing to an all-out attack. It's understandable why he felt unsure. Stuart's absence and the lack of knowledge of the whereabouts of the rest of the Army of the Potomac plagued him. If he ordered an all-out attack on Cemetery Hill, five infantry corps might show up all of a sudden and destroy his small force. As the day wound down and the Union soldiers coalesced on Cemetery Hill, Powell Hill believed that they were demoralized and routed. Another strong advance would send them running again. Lee wasn't quite so sure. Around 5 p.m., General James Longstreet reached Seminary Ridge, where he met with General Lee. When the two had been together earlier, Lee was anxious about the growing battle. Now, both generals watched as their soldiers drove the enemy south and captured Gettysburg. Longstreet maintained after the battle that he and the army commander discussed how they should follow up their success. He said to Lee, quote, We could not call the enemy to a position better suited to our plans. All that we have to do is file around his left and secure good ground between him and his capital, unquote. What Longstreet suggested was a classic turning movement. In other accounts, he also added a bit about forcing Meade to attack them on ground of their selection. Lee rejected his proposal, quote, If he is there tomorrow, I will attack him, unquote. This took Longstreet by surprise. A few episodes ago, I talked about how Longstreet felt that the two had come to an understanding about the campaign. While it would be an offensive operation, they would fight only when it was to their advantage and use defensive tactics. Now, Lee was arguing for the opposite. A battle that less than 12 hours ago he didn't want to fight, he was now advocating to continue by attacking again. Longstreet pushed back. Attacking Meade is exactly what he would want. He felt that doing so would be a waste as many soldiers would needlessly die in these assaults over some nameless hill in Pennsylvania. Longstreet also said after the war that he believed if they were going to make an attack, July 1st was the time to do it. Based on what he'd seen, they had the numerical advantage, and morale was high. Many historians have criticized Longstreet for acting petulantly, if not downright insubordinately, but the two generals had a great working relationship. Him speaking up to Lee just showed that he was comfortable asserting his opinion, and many contemporaries, particularly Porter Alexander, believe that Lee's fatal mistake at Gettysburg was not pressing the attack on July 1st and putting it off to the next day. Lee seemed to believe that there was an opportunity to destroy the Army of the Potomac in detail. If he felt this way, why did he wait till July 2nd to make the decisive assault? Other than his belief that the entire army needed to be present, he didn't really have a good excuse. Ultimately, Longstreet and his supporters were right. The one time in the battle that the Confederates had a decided numerical superiority was around 5.30pm on the 1st. But around 6pm, Brigadier General George Stannard's 2nd Vermont Brigade arrived from Washington and joined the 1st Corps. Shortly after, General John Geary's division of the 12th Corps came behind the Vermonters and marched to Cemetery Ridge. Then came General David Burney's division of the 3rd Corps, which also moved to Cemetery Ridge. Finally, the rest of General Henry Slocum's 12th Corps arrived. General Alpheus Williams' division took up a position on the Baltimore Pike, to the south of the main Union defensive line. Just a couple hours after the battle had wound down, the Army of the Potomac now had an estimated 27,000 soldiers. While Lee was with Longstreet, he sent Major Walter Taylor, one of his aides and de facto chief of staff, with verbal orders to give to General Ewell. Taylor was to tell Ewell, quote, to carry the hill occupied by the enemy, if practicable, but to avoid a general engagement until the arrival of the other divisions of the army, 
end quote. Of all the great controversies surrounding the Battle of Gettysburg, this might be the greatest. Lee's infamous discretionary orders, particularly those two words, if practicable, mark a real hinge point in the battle. As discussed in earlier episodes, this type of directive was pretty common for Lee. He expected his subordinates to be able to take his vague suggestions and run with it. Many of the officers that surrounded Ewell had previously served under Stonewall Jackson, and a common refrain amongst them was that the late general would have gathered all available forces and ordered an immediate attack on Cemetery Hill. But Jackson was not there, and Ewell was new to his position. If Lee truly wanted him to make a serious effort to capture the hill, he should have used more direct language. Was it practicable? Well, that's debatable. If Ewell ordered Early's entire division, along with Dole's brigade, to attack, he probably would have had about 6,000 infantrymen. Hancock had at least that many soldiers by 5.30. Realistically, there were somewhere between eight to 11,000 men, albeit worn out, but not completely demoralized, as some Confederates believed. Unless the morale of the 1st and 11th Corps truly was shattered, the troops that Ewell had at his disposal would not have realistically been able to carry the position without taking heavy casualties. Only the addition of Anderson's division and Pender's two fresh brigades could have made it possible. Lee's second caveat, to avoid a general engagement until the arrival of the other divisions of the army, is usually ignored completely when discussing Ewell's dilemma. What exactly was Lee trying to say? Attack the hill if you think it's realistically possible that you can take it without initiating another large battle? What kind of order is that? Ewell was already filled with indecision about how to proceed once his two divisions captured the town. By throwing in those two provisos, Ewell's lack of conviction in continuing the offensive was worsened. If he wanted Ewell to attack, he should have said so. And furthermore, if he wanted said attack to succeed, he would have ordered Hill to bring up reinforcements to aid the Second Corps. Another question to ask is if Ewell had pushed his corps to take Cemetery Hill and succeeded in driving the 1st and 11th Corps, what would then happen? Well, I think it's safe to assume that the Battle of Gettysburg would have ended on July 1st, 1863. Meade would have little incentive to attack Lee's army if it was in a strong position on the hills and ridges south of Gettysburg. He'd likely order his army to fall back to the proposed Pipe Creek defensive line. As long as he was between the Confederates and Washington, and Lee's army was making no serious threat to a major city, I doubt Meade would take the offensive unless pushed by Lincoln, Stanton, and Halleck to do so. Just before Major Taylor reached Ewell with Lee's ambiguous order, Ewell had sought out the opinions of his two division commanders that were present. General Early was more confident because two of his four brigades, those led by Hayes and Avery, were in good condition. Gordon's brigade had probably expended more energy, but still had some gas in the tank. He also had the entirely fresh brigade of Brigadier General William Extra Billy Smith. Smith was born in 1797 in Tidewater, Virginia, and spent most of his time before the Civil War as a lawyer and politician. He served as the governor of Virginia and a congressional representative. He'd been in the Army of Northern Virginia since its inception. When he was promoted to Brigadier General earlier in 1863, it made him, at 65, the oldest field general not only in the entire army, but in all of the Confederate forces. His 800-man brigade, made up of three regiments from Virginia, was the smallest in the 2nd Corps and second smallest in the Army of Northern Virginia. General Rhodes expressed less confidence as his division was almost completely spent. Only Dole's Georgia Brigade was still relatively fresh. Another issue that made the situation even more uncertain was a report from General Smith that federal troops were approaching Gettysburg from the east. 
It's unclear exactly who General Smith saw, but it's possible that it was the vanguard of the Union 12th Corps, maybe Williams' division, which was approaching Gettysburg around this time. Early was skeptical of Smith's report, but the potential threat to their flank was enough for him to divert Gordon's and Smith's brigades to watch out for the arrival of more Yankee infantry. Another interesting character involved in the discussions of what to do next was Major General Isaac Trimble. Trimble was 61, which made him the second oldest general in the Army of Northern Virginia, behind only extra Billy Smith. Prior to the war, he attended West Point and had a brief Army career, before he left military service to become a railroad engineer and executive. He helped survey or construct many important rail lines in the East, most notably the Baltimore and Ohio Railroad, which only a few days earlier the Confederate cavalry had worked to destroy. Trimble served as an infantry commander until he was seriously wounded at the Second Battle of Bull Run. Similarly to Ewell, he was shot in the leg, and though he'd managed to avoid amputation, his recovery was a lot slower than Ewell's. He was promoted earlier in 1863, and was set to take command of the division in the Second Corps that ultimately went to Allegheny Johnson, but setbacks in his rehabilitation kept him on the sideline. Desperate to get back in the action, he followed the Army of Northern Virginia on its march north during the earlier weeks of the campaign, with no real assignment. He basically just tagged along with the 2nd Corps in the hopes that there'd be some sort of opening, but mostly he just annoyed Ewell with unwarranted advice. This was Trimble's post-war recounting of their July 1st conversation. Quote, The battle was over, and we had won it handsomely. General Ewell moved about uneasily, a good deal excited, and seemed to me to be undecided what to do next. Well, General, we have had a grand success. Are you not going to follow it up and push our advantage? He replied that General Lee had instructed him not to bring on a general engagement without orders, and that he would wait for them. I said, that hardly applies to the present state of things, as we have fought a hard battle already, and should secure the advantage gained. He made no rejoinder, but was far from composure. I was deeply impressed with the conviction that it was a critical moment for us, and made a remark to that effect. As no movement seemed immediate, I rode off to our left, north of the town, to reconnoiter, and noticed conspicuously the wooded hill northeast of Gettysburg, Culp's, and a half-mile distant, and of an elevation to command the country for miles each way, and overlooking Cemetery Hill above the town. Returning to see General Yule, who was still under much embarrassment, I said, General, there, pointing to Culp's Hill, is an eminence of commanding position, and not now occupied, as it ought to be by us, or the enemy soon. I advise you to send a brigade and hold it if we are to remain here. He said, Are you sure it commands the town? I replied, Certainly it does, as you can see, and it ought to be held by us at once. General Yule made some impatient reply, and the conversation dropped. Unquote. Allegedly, Yule's reply was, quote, When I need advice from a junior officer, I generally ask for it. Unquote. Witnesses also recalled Trimble subsequently throwing his sword on the ground and storming off in anger. Ewell, Early, and Rhodes did concur that Culp's Hill should be secured before the Army of the Potomac could do so. By that time, it was already occupied by the Iron Brigade, but Ewell did have enough troops at his disposal to drive them off. Culp's Hill neighbored Cemetery Hill to the east, and though it was taller, it was heavily wooded and rocky, thus making it less suitable for deploying artillery. Nevertheless, it was still an important position to hold. If the Confederates could get infantry up there, it would potentially make holding Cemetery Hill untenable for the Federals. But because of the uncertainty of Union reinforcements arriving, Ewell and his generals agreed to wait for Allegheny Johnson's division, which was marching down the Chambersburg Pike, and would arrive before nightfall. Other than sporadic artillery fire and infantry skirmishers trading shots, 
The battle had reached its second lull of July 1st, that would not be renewed in earnest until the following day. That's where I'm going to leave off for today. When we pick back up in the next episode, I'll talk about what happened on the night of July 1st, the plans of both Lee and Meade for July 2nd, and the beginning of the second day of the Battle of Gettysburg. Thanks for listening, folks. My name is Joe Barton, and this has been, excuse me, history.